0: This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. Today's decision in the case of Janice v. Afsme at the Supreme Court affirms the rights of both workers and taxpayers not to support political causes that they want nothing to do with. Trevor Burris, who worked on Cato's brief in the case, discusses the opinion of the majority and the dissenters. This is from the majority opinion in Janice v. Afsme. It was written by Samuel Alito. He writes... "...compelling individuals to mouth support for views they find objectionable violates that cardinal constitutional command, and in most contexts any such effort would be universally condemned." Suppose, for example, that the state of Illinois required all residents to sign a document expressing support for a particular set of positions on controversial public issues, say, the platform of one of the major political parties. No one, we trust, would seriously argue that the First Amendment permits this. Perhaps because such compulsion so plainly violates the Constitution, most of our free speech cases have involved restrictions on what can be said rather than laws compelling speech. But measures compelling speech are at least as threatening. That's from the majority opinion in the Janus case that that came out today. What is your general takeaway on the majority opinion. This wasn't that big of a surprise, but was there anything surprising in the majority opinion? Uh, No,
1: it it wasn't because also Alito wrote it, and Alito has been writing He wrote two cases that led up to the Janus decision. One of them was Harris v. Quinn, and one of them was Knox v. SEIU, and in those, actually in Harris v. Quinn, he goes on. Uh, almost unnecessarily explaining that a boot has never been fully justified, and there's a lot of things wrongs with it. And he actually, in this opinion, he just says, "Well, let me refer to you if, to what I said in Harris. If you want to know why a boot doesn't really stand the test of time, and it, it is the correct decision for for all the reasons he just said, it, the way unions, public sector unions, could get money was an aberration in American First Amendment law. I mean, just just this fact that. In Abood, they ruled that they, they couldn't take your money and spend it on political ads, which should be an obvious First Amendment win, uh, but they could take some other money and use it for core collective bargaining activities. But in order to get your money back, so the, the union takes all this money the way before today, the, the union takes all this money from you and then tells you how much they're going to spend on political ads and then let, lets you the gives you the ability to opt out of having your First Amendment rights violated. Just that is an aberration. It's usually not the case that we presume you can violate someone's First Amendment rights until you tell them otherwise. And this that's just one of the ways that the case sort of d- was untenable. Uh, in 2012, in Knox v. SEIU, Samuel Alito wrote the opinion on that, and that one was about a secondary assessment. So that was one of the first cracks in Abood's uh, sort of... Uh, foundations, I guess, and in that case, uh, the SEIU in California did an emergency, uh, took, a, took an emergency fund from its employees to spend politically on some sort of union measure on the ballot, and didn't give them the chance to opt out. And so that one, they said, no, you have to do that. And then in Harris v. Quinn the state of Illinois and and Rod Blagojevich, who is currently in the governor's wing of the Illinois State Penitentiary, I guess until uh, maybe Trump pardons him, but Rob Rob Blagojevich uh, unionized every home healthcare worker via an executive order. These are people who work in a house for maybe like often a family member, like a parent who takes care or of someone a close friend who takes care of someone who's who's wheelchair bound or somehow unable to take care of themselves and the, the person they're taking care of gets Medicaid. And so then they get paid out of Medicaid. He unionized every single one of those people, which made no sense because they don't even work in the same workplace. So what are they going to bargain over? And the Supreme Court struck that down and that was when we set up this possibility of Janice. And this of course we almost had this when Scalia died under the Friedrich's case. And Scalia died in between the exact same question. Should a boot be able Overruled. Scalia died in between the argument and the issuing of the decision, which we all thought would be five-four. We go through the whole Merrick Garland, Neil Gorsuch debacle, and we have Gorsuch on the bench, and unsurprisingly, he voted the way Scalia presumably would have voted in this and struck down this untenable precedent.
0: All right, uh, here's a little another chunk from the opinion that responds uh, very directly to uh, and a, a claim made by uh, Justice Kagan in her dissent. He writes. We recognize that the loss of payments from non members may cause unions to experience unpleasant transition costs in the short term and may require unions to make adjustments in order to attract and retain members. But we must weigh these disadvantages against the considerable windfall that unions have received under a bood for the past 41 years. It is hard to estimate how many billions of dollars have been taken from non-members and transferred to public sector unions in violation of the First Amendment. Those unconstitutional exactions cannot be allowed to continue indefinitely.
1: And we don't know. We don't know exactly what will happen. People have tried to run uh, prediction algorithms and stuff to figure out how many people are going to opt out now, how much money the unions are going to lose in some states. This doesn't apply to all states. I mean, it does, but, all, but some states are right to work states. Uh, only 23 states actually would, with some of the big ones, such as California uh, with the largest teachers union, uh, it applies to them. And so how much would California lose? It's estimated between 20% and 40% of its membership, which would be about $40 million Year. So yes, it's a sizable chunk. But as Justice Alito said, if you violated my rights for 40 years and you got a bunch of money, I, I really don't have any tears for you when you complain that you're, gonna, you're relying on money that you've been taking unconstitutionally from me. And for me, it's just really about fairness. Uh, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of associations out there that lobby the government for the interests of certain groups. Uh, the, the international, or probably not inter, the national booksellers association. I think that's a thing, but pretend it's a thing. Uh, they they lobby the government on behalf of the interests of booksellers, and they cannot compel people to give them money. You you know, if you're a bookseller, you can join the association or not. If you don't join the association and the booksellers association gets some legislation passed and you benefit from it, it that doesn't justify than going and knocking on their door and saying, okay, now you owe us, which is essentially the argument the unions are making here. The unions now are just like any interest group, the public sector unions, who have to lobby the government on equal footing. The Parent Teachers Association, who can maybe be fighting the union sometime on different parts of education policy, they can't go to the parents who aren't a member of the PTA and say, hey, we're benefiting you. You owe us money now. That's the way everyone else works except for unions. And it's an extraordinary privilege that they've enjoyed for a long time. And I'm not anti-union at all. I'm an anti Involuntary unions, I don't think unions should have any thumb on the scale that lets them have more political power than other groups. And if you just look at the kind of policies they can get passed, and if you look at a place like Europe, much of Europe, where unions, public sector unions can go on strike you know, 70, 80 times a summer and, destroy, and disrupt people's lives and their vacations, uh, I don't want that to happen here,
0: but unions can still go for their interests and try and get things from the government. They just don't need to do it with a special privilege. Uh, this is from uh, Justice Kagan's uh, dissent, and she relies uh, very heavily on stare decisis in her, um, in her opinion. She writes here, Abood is not just any precedent. It is embedded in the law in a way not many decisions are. Over four decades, this court has cited Abood favorably many times and has affirmed and applied its central distinction between the costs of collective bargaining and those of political activities. Reviewing those decisions not a decade ago, this court unanimously called the Abood rule a general First Amendment principle. So it, she says that the, you know, she argues later here that the reliance interests of states that have set up legal uh, regimes uh using uh, a bood as guidance and as something that they could depend on is something that is extremely important and throwing uh, this uh, uh, throwing out a bood, overturning a bood, is um you know it, it's extremely disruptive I think it's
1: fairly disruptive but we have to understand how weird the system that existed before so yes the, the unions have had to go through this, Process of notifying their members, their non-members, the people who they take money from but don't want to be a member of the union. They have to give them these what they're called Hudson notices, where they explain how much they're going to take. And actually, on page forty-one of Justice Alito's opinion, he he gives an example of of uh, how the the a typical way that the union would send someone a notice of what they're taking and what what's chargeable and what's not chargeable. And uh, it's very confusing. Uh, all of it is very confusing. The unions have used the confusingness of the these sort of forms that they send to their advantage for many years, uh, making sure that you know they say, well, you can have your money back. There's some money you can't have back, which of course today, now they have to give it all back. But the money that they were, they had to give back under a boot is like, you can have your money back, but you know, here's 37 forms that you have to fill out and you have to file only in two weeks in August. All these just very spurious type of behaviors so they could keep as much money as they wanted to and people just wouldn't bother with it. So yeah, the unions have relied on it and other states have relied on it, but that to me, it's, it's it's one of the things that we look at with stare decisis, which, is, which Alito goes through an entire section that very closely uh, mirrors Cato's brief, actually, in which we really focused on whether or not Abood is a good candidate to be overturned. and One of them is it's been proven to be un- unworkable uh, and that it was wrong when it was decided. It was decided on on wrong grounds actually, uh, Abood cited cases that it shouldn't have cited for propositions that didn't uh, mean what they thought it meant. So all these together, you know, Alito was very careful. Whenever you overturn a 41-year-old president, you want to be very careful to explain that, you know, we're doing this for good reasons. And that it doesn't mean we we can't overturn cases. Cases that are wrong will create huge reliance interest, but they're still wrong. And Abood was wrong the day it was decided. So, um,
0: you know, I, I want to make a note here. and And that is of uh, libertarian free market organizations. Um, it is it it's important for uh, us to make a note that the Mackinac Center, which was started in the late 1980s by Larry Reed, uh, and he started Mackinac when it before state based think tanks were really a thing. This was what they this was the nut they wanted to crack, mm-hmm. and it and here here we are, uh, you know, decades later. And uh, it's been cracked. So, you know, to the, to the people who, who run that organization, have been producing research on uh, labor law for so long, congratulations and thank you. And of course, National Right to Work Foundation has
1: been working on this for quite a while too. It is, it is a, I mean, the left will portray this as a dastardly plot to overturn workers' rights, um, which is an interesting thing that you know we we always talk about plots in D.C. And that's that is true. People get together in DC and, and make plans of action. That is a true thing on all sides of the political spectrum. And so there was a there is an idea that that we could get this precedent overturned because it's just wrong. I mean it, it it's very there's a section of Alito's opinion where he explains and I wrote about it in our brief uh, how wrong it actually is. So I encourage listeners who may be skeptical of the Supreme Court's decision to go read about how how bad the reasoning was in Abood. And so these organizations saw this and they brought cases that were going to chip away at it slowly. This is not dissimilar from what Thurgood Marshall did in Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, that's the kind of legal strategy that, that both sides employ now. And uh, I think, yes, it's it's worthy of congratulations for the people who've really been in the trenches working on this stuff.
0: All right. So what is next? Uh, you know, Kagan makes note here that a whole lot of state regimes have to be altered. But the, the fundamental finding seems to be uh, union exactions from your paycheck must be opt-in, not opt-out and they can't simply take money from you uh, in, in it with, you know, sort of the thin argument that, well, we're benefiting you, so this is okay. What, what do states have to do to respond to this, and where do you see labor uh, as, as a legal matter uh, going in the next five years?
1: Well, I see. I think... Labor, they've been preparing for this uh, for a while. They they thought, like I thought, that there was a 85% chance they were going to lose this case, if not higher. So they've been working on their strategy of how to get people actual benefits, how to retain their membership. And I've always said that this could be a benefit to labor if they look at it the right way. One of the things people really don't like about unions is when they look at their paycheck and they say, "Well, what, what is this forty five dollars I'm giving to the you know SEIU or something?" And I'm not seeing any benefit, and they and they just they they they're not really helping me out. And so it's the non voluntariness of unions that has made them quite unpopular amongst people. In most of Europe, actually, unions they operate a little differently. They of course have their own extraordinary privileges, uh, many of which are much higher than the ones that that have existed here. But there they are voluntary unions mostly, and they can be multiple unions per workplace. Uh, here it doesn't really work that way. So I think labor. Needs to try and promote this as look at this as an upside. I mean, they're not going to be able to get this overturned. So promote their activities. Try and benefit people. Try and convince people to join them by giving them benefits that they enjoy, as opposed to resting on the fact that you have that they've had enjoy this extraordinary privilege of taking money from people without their permission in in these states, uh, in the twenty three states, and more in the past. And in we don't know exactly what the what the population of labor unions will look like, but in general, I think if if you've followed Cato's work in particular. It's not a bad thing if we weaken the power of teachers' unions, and if the left is concerned for police unions, and they should be, it's not a bad thing if we weaken the power of police unions that exonerate police officers and protect them. It's just not generally a bad thing uh, if the if the unions have to play on a level playing field. So we'll see maybe 20%, 40% loss of membership, a loss of a substantial amount of money and a retooling of how they do their business, and maybe labor coming out stronger in the end.
0: Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.